in history. Death is beaten, you have rescued me. Sing it out, Jesus is alive. The empty cross, the empty grave. Life eternal, you have won the day. Shout it out, Jesus is alive. He's alive. Oh, happy day, happy day. You washed my sins away. Oh, happy day, happy day. You have rescued me Sing it out Jesus is alive Empty cross, the empty grave Life eternal, you have won the day Shout it out Jesus is alive He's alive And oh, happy day My sins away. Oh, happy day, happy day. I'll never be the same. Forever I am changed. And oh, what a glorious day! What a glorious way.
Oh, come. 
share a testimony um, there was this young man who became one of my clients and um, just a very intimidating individual I mean he was always fighting with the cops and um, fighting with his family and, and whatnot and um, but just something about him I mean he's uh, I guess I can compare him to Vin Diesel's character on the Fast and Furious. He was just this cool dude, but he just was tough and definitely would want to have him as a friend um, if you're always in trouble. But um, I, I, it, he was always going through stuff, and it was like I, I could just see that even through that facade of toughness and and you know just this biker mentality, he. I just kept looking at him as my son, as just this young man that just was hurting and was just looking for love. And so as that scripture says that we lay down our life 
I had to lay down my life in the parking lot of a busy street. It, um, and I just reached out and prayed for him. And I just saw this, this, this tough guy just start to crumble and, and everything just to fall off of him. And, and just to see him cry. And, and, and it was as if I gave him a million dollars. He was so happy that, that I took that time and ministered to him. And at that day, I led him to the Lord. And this was eight months ago. And this past week, I've been going through a lot through my work. It just, it just seemed like every, uh, God, God has been very prosperous in our family. And um, it was like every day I was getting a call and that call was money. Um, but this past week it was, we're taking your money. It was just, it was getting really tough for me. And then Friday night, I'm just laying in bed and I get this call and it's just young man and he's just praising God and he's just telling me that he's been eight, this is, uh, it's been eight months sober. And, oh, praise God, hallelujah. And he's was also wanted to uh, share with me that he's having a son and the last four children he's tried to have were sons and they all passed away, they died before they were even born. And so I just want to share with you guys that, with you all, that uh, as we come to church and as we, we get in the presence of God and we hear the word, let's just remember it's not just for us, it's for, it's for this world. You know, it just seems like we're being attacked and we're losing um, our values and everything, but, but this is his commandment that we love one another and, and we have to die to ourselves. We have to take that bullet, that spiritual bullet for or metaphorical bullet for for these people that, that just are confused and they're hurting and they need God's love. And and I tell you what, I just praise God for this family that we do value love and we do um, um, care and then we're a church that gives and I just want to say just stay in the fight, um, the good fight of faith. Praise God. All right, welcome everyone to Redeeming Love and uh, let's all um, prepare our hearts for the work. Good morning, I'm Destiny Inglehart, and on behalf of Redeeming Love Christian Embassy, we welcome and thank you for spending part of your weekend here with us. RLCE is dedicated to be a wise church through worship, instruction, service, and evangelism, and we are focused on loving God and people. If you are a first-time guest or just tuning in, we would like to connect with you. We know everyone prefers different methods of communication, so we offer a few. You can text WELCOME to the number 989-625-9300 or you can scan the QR code with your cell phone to fill out our online welcome card or you can simply fill out the welcome card at the hospitality table in the foyer. We have some gifts waiting for you. Now here's some announcements to help us all stay connected. Embassy Student Ministries Life Group for grades 6 through 12 will resume today at 6.30 p.m. to 8 o'clock p.m. at 4566 Greenfield Drive, Bay City. Come gather with your friends and make new ones. Would you like to be kept in the know? Then sign up for the Embassy text notifications. Simply text UPDATE to the number 989-625-9300. Once you receive a reply, text YES to confirm. It's that easy. Do you enjoy singing, or better yet, can you sing? Do you play an instrument? Are you good with computers or cameras? Because we need you. Please contact Nelson Salgado at 989-714-1711 or email him at nelson at rlce.org. 
Thank you for using your talents. Are you looking for another ministry opportunity? Great, we have them. Embassy Kids Ministry needs volunteers to help an Embassy Kids class. Contact Pastor Michael at 989-213-6370 or michael at rlce.org. Also, we have outgrown the van and you need a second one along with more van drivers. Please contact Tom Hagenauer at 989-225-8508. New life groups are being offered this fall. The College and Career Class is meeting each Thursday at Pastor Darlene's home, located at 5572 West Springnell Drive at 7 o'clock p.m. The Joy Club for ages 55 and up will be meeting each Friday at Pastor Darlene's home at 6 o'clock p.m. Each Wednesday, Therese Long will lead a group at her home located at 609 North Lynn Street at 6 o'clock p.m. Each Sunday night at 6.30 p.m., Apostle Jeff and Denise are offering a life group at their home located at 917 North Winona Avenue. Sign up in the foyer at the hospitality desk and intentionally get to know someone new. Remember, life is better together. Great job, Embassy family. We met our summer goal of $780,000 for the building fund. Now on to the next goal. Here are a few convenient ways to give. Scan this QR code from your cell phone or text GIVE to the number 989-625-9300 or place your gift in the envelope, mark building on it, and mail it to 3012 East Midland Road, Bay City, Michigan, 48706. You can renew your pledge, make a new pledge, or help us with fundraisers. The Embassy is glad to announce that Shane Willard will be here in person on Wednesday, October 19th at 7 o'clock p.m. at the beautiful State Theater. Shane always brings a great word marrying the culture and the meaning of the past and making it relevant for us today. Invite your friends and come for a night of insight and humor. It's been seven years since we've heard him preach, and on Sunday, October 23rd, the Embassy will have a treat as Pastor Inglehart will be ministering during the 10 a.m. service. While we send Apostle Jeff and Denise, Pastor Rick and Pastor Nikki, to a minister's conference in Georgia. If you are able to contribute to their trip, mark your envelope conference. We are only $800 away from their goal. So mark your calendar for Sunday, October 23rd, and join us for a special morning. Our children will be heading next door to the Secure United Way Family Center for Embassy Kids. Parents, make sure to have your child check-in ticket for pickup. The nursery is open for children ages 3 and under on the mezzanine each Sunday except for the first Sunday of each month. Those desiring to give your tithes and offerings may do so at this time with containers located to the left and to the right of the stage. Or by texting GIVE to the number 989-625-9300. Or simply scan this QR code with your cell phone. Thank you for moving God's kingdom forward. Please feel free to take a moment to greet one another. Our next announcements will resume shortly. Found love beyond all reason You gave your life your offer Yeah, the praise goes out to you. 
Today, today, I live for one thing Give you praise in everything I do Yeah, the praise goes out to you Found love Found love beyond all reason You gave your life, your all for me Call me yours forever Caught in the mercy fall out Found hope, found life, found all I need You're all I need The time has come to stand for what you believe in So I for one am gonna give my praise to you The time has come to stand for all you believe in So I for one am gonna praise to you Jesus today today is all or nothing all the praise ways is out to you yeah the praise goes out to you today today is all or nothing give you praise in everything I do yeah the praise goes out to you All we are is yours All we living for is all you are Is all that you are And all we are is yours All we living for is all you are Is all that you are Let me hear you sing it All we are is yours All we living for is all you are Is all that you are All we are is yours All we living for is all you are Is all you are Today, today is all or nothing Praise yourself goes out to you yeah the praise goes out to you today today I live for one thing give you praise in everything I do yeah the praise goes out to you today today it's all or nothing all the way the praise goes out to you yeah, the praise goes out to you Today, today, I live for one thing Give you praise in everything I do Yeah, the praise goes out to you Would you welcome Shane Willard tonight as he comes and teaches God's Word to us? All right Thank you all right, you can be seated. So we get to have some fun tonight. I get to open God's Word, and I take that very, very seriously. And I get to open it to a group of people who show up at church on a Wednesday night. Now, what that does is that frees me from the responsibility of being an evangelist, because I'm assuming everybody is a follower of Jesus. And so when you, anytime you open the Bible, you want to ask 
two questions. One, what happened? And two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? And so I can't wait to uh, share this with you. As always, it's good to be with my friends, the Engleharts and, um, in Bay City, and of course, my friend Jamie Pine and Penny Pine, who uh, we've journeyed <laughs> together forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And, um, and I just love, I love you guys, and thanks for being so kind. I think eight years or something, we just stopped by here on a Wednesday night before I'm at Richard Crisco's down in Rochester, and um, this time was particularly, um, uh, <clears throat> took a lot to get here. I mean, it, it's, that was uh, flying from Amsterdam. That means it's uh, two in the morning to me. So what you're going to get is what I sound like jet lagged. So <clears throat> we're going to have some fun. And so I want to talk to you about the cross and resurrection um, because it's, it's the thing that unites, no, no matter what Christianity or form of Christianity you come from, the cross and resurrection is what unites us. But, but the cross and resurrection should not be something we believe in. The cross and resurrection should be more profound than that. The cross and resurrection should be something that happened that fundamentally shifts the way we see all other happenings after that. So, so the cross doesn't have one meaning. For the God of the universe to humble himself, put on flesh and blood, allow himself to be executed at the hands of a local government for the sake of all of humanity does not have one meaning. It defies meaning. This is why, this is why the New Testament writers struggled to put words around what it means. So, so, so in one place, it's called the forgiveness of sins. In another place, it's called the cancellation of debt. It actually, the most cases, it's called the defeat of death, that, 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 that evidently death has no sting um, now, in another place, it's called the evidence that God identifies with our suffering, that we don't serve a God who sits high and mighty and watches us suffer, rather a God that enters into uh, that suffering. In another place, it's called the confrontation of oppression. In another place, it's called that. And, and I want to say yes, amen to all of that. Is the cross the forgiveness of sin? Sure, sure. Since before the foundation of the world, actually, the New Testament writers say, is the cross the cancellation of death? Yeah. Is it the defeat of death? Yes. Because how do you defeat death? You die. And then you rise again. It's, it's, the defeat of, it's the defeat of death. It is the cross the confrontation to oppression? Yes. And we say yes. We embrace that. It, it is, is the cross uh, the evidence that God identifies with our sufferings? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, but when you only have one talk and you only have one meeting, you, so you got, you got one 35-minute, 40-minute talk, you got to pick one. And so I want to pick one of the meanings that I don't think gets enough playtime. And the reason I'm picking this is because I, I'm convinced we don't talk about this enough. And it's not like the others aren't true. It's just I think we could do for a bit more discussion and wrestling with this. Because see, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. Great sermons are meant to be wrestled with. If you can evaluate a sermon the amount of time it took to deliver it, not a great sermon. Sermons that are great are the ones you're still talking about three days from now, and you're going, what do we do with that? What do we do with this? And so anytime I speak, I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. I want scriptures to get bigger, not smaller, right? I want us to wrestle a bit. I want us to laugh a bit. I want us to cry maybe once. I want us to um, enjoy God's word. I want to bring it to life. I want, it, I want us to enter into an event that, that we'll call a sermon, all right? So this is a guy named Paul. And he's talking about the meaning of the cross in a place called Ephesus. And here's how he frames just one of the many meanings of the cross. This is, if you could bring that up for me. This is what it says. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so by making peace. 
and might reconcile us both to God into one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. I want to talk to you tonight about the end of hostility. But to Paul, people who profoundly connect to the cross, it should end hostility between us. That the cross isn't simply about the forgiveness of sins. It's something that should fundamentally shift the way we see our whole world, namely how we handle conflict with someone who deserves us to retaliate. I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about our basic disposition in conflict. That the cross should not just be a ticket to heaven, although we embrace heaven. The cross should be a fundamental way that defines how we handle conflict. Now, this sounds remarkably familiar to Jesus' first sermon. First sermon. Third line in. Pretty important. Check this out. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Really? Is Jesus tying our basic disposition and conflict to whether we'll be known as a child of God or not? Now, let's just stop, and for 20 seconds, let's wrestle with that. Because I'm going to tell you, what, let me tell you what made me wrestle with that. And let's just be honest, okay? May as well be honest. And if you could lie to yourself, it's a whole nother problem, right? So if I was to hand a blank sheet of paper out to every single person, and I said, and a pen, and I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write the criteria it takes to be called a child of God. If I was to say, okay, you can use the whole Bible, you can use your experience, you could use your thoughts, you could use whatever, but I want you to write what you think it takes to be called a child of God. Where on that list would being a peacemaker fall? And I tell you what made me wrestle with this. Until I saw this, it wouldn't have made my list. And I'm betting a pretty penny, it probably didn't make many of our lists. And here's the problem with that. And here's why that's so convicting and so challenging. Something that wouldn't make our list actually was Jesus's first criteria for what it means to be a child of God. I didn't have anything to do with the song choices tonight. But we sang it. Whom the Son sets free is free. I'm not going to sing because I can't. Is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Really? Are we? If being a child of God is exhibited by our basic disposition in conflict. How are we doing with that? Are we showing the world that we're children of God by our basic disposition in conflict? Now, lest you think, hang on now, Shane, that's only one verse, could have been mistranslated. Good point. It is. It's a good point. Here's the problem with that. In the same sermon, 34 verses later, that's called two minutes later, Jesus is preaching a sermon, and two minutes later, he says the same thing with different words. Here's what he says. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Twice in the same sermon, Jesus ties our basic disposition and conflict to whether or not we'll be called a child of God or not, which leads me to this to wrestle with. If being a peacemaker in our basic disposition and conflict is the criteria for being known as a child of God, are we children of God? Let me see if I can illustrate this. Um, this is something that happened to me for real in 2013. This is absolutely a true story. Um, I got um, 
I got the opportunity to study with a top history expert in Jerusalem. I was, uh, to, 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 to not bore you with the details, somehow he got exposed to something I had done. He, uh, he contacted me, invited me to come speak at his messianic kibbutz, um, his messianic synagogue. He, um, he then, uh, as part of my payment, he agreed to teach me history. He is an ancient Near Eastern history um, professor at the university there. He's booked two and a half years in advance um, to to do. He's an academician. He told me up front, he said, I'm not a tourist guide. Um, If you're looking for tourist stuff, you're going to be bored with this. But if you're okay with academia, I'll be glad to, I'll, I'll meet you as early in the morning as you want. And we'll go until you're tired, right? So I'll teach you all day, every day. Um, that you're here until you're ready to go. So I made this deal with him. And so um, he took me out on the first morning, and within 10 minutes, he blew my mind, okay? Like he showed me something, and he told me the history behind it, and I was amazed, right? And I responded quite violently in enthusiasm, okay? Let me show you what I did, and then I'll explain how he thought. Remember, he speaks English, but English is not his first language, okay? Here was my response to him blowing my mind. I went, really? Really? Now, I was amazed. He took it that I wanted to argue. Okay? Now, let me be clear. I didn't want to argue. Why? Because he's forgotten more than I know. Right? Let's be clear. If I do argue with an expert in Jewish history while standing in Jerusalem, that's dumb. Let's also be clear. If we got in an argument, who has all the arsenal to destroy me in an argument? He does. Let's be clear. I didn't want to argue, but that's not what's important. What's important is he thought I did. And he had every arsenal to destroy me in an argument. He thought I wanted to argue, and he could have destroyed me. But here was his response. Oh, shame. Peace between us is the most important thing. If one of us needs to be wrong, please let it be me. Well, I was confused, which made it worse. Because my response to that was, what? He said, oh, shame. Peace between us is the most important thing. Would you let me be wrong? so that the world can see Christ glorified in our conversation. If an outsider looked at us talking to one another, may Jesus be glorified more than I need to be right about anything. Peace. Now, right, wrong, or indifferent, that's a child of God right there. I'll be 95 one day, and as long as I'm in my right mind, I will remember that, and I will want to be like that guy. That is a peacemaker. So I said, I said, did you think I wanted to argue with you? He said, didn't you? I said, first, I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? My tone of voice must have um, given you the thought that I wanted to argue with you. Forgive me for that. That's first. Second, I didn't want to argue with you. Now, as articulate as I can be at times, at that moment, I could think of nothing to say other than a metaphor, right? But English isn't his first language. So I was like, I was... um, he was, I, I was, um, 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 I was blown away, right? Now we're standing in Jerusalem. He's going, who is blowing what away? What? Right? I, I said, um, no, no, no. Um, and, and I couldn't think of anything but metaphors. Finally, I said, I was amazed. And I could see his eyes change. And he went, 
Were you amazed? I said, I was amazed, man. It was amazing. I was like, wow, wow. He said, you were amazed. I said, yes, this is what he did. He held his heart and he said, oh, good. Because I knew I was right about that. <laughs> he said, but seriously, I don't need to be right about anything more than I would want an outsider to look at our conversation and see Jesus glorified. Now, however far you want to take the theology on this, that's not my point. Let's go to the most elemental level. The most elemental thing going on here is as followers of Jesus, can we all agree together that our basic disposition in conflict is very important to Jesus? And our basic disposition in conflict is very important to showing the world what kind of Jesus we are, right? What kind of Jesus we follow, what kind of Jesus we serve. Now, to understand this, we gotta understand two things. One, how does hostility work? Paul said the cross was the end of hostility, right? So how does hostility work? And then second to that, how does peacemaking work? So let's talk about hostility first. Now, there's a great story in the Old Testament that's quite long. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you the story, and then I'm going to show you little snippets in a second, okay? But we're all familiar with the story. It's the story of Samson, all right? So um, let me see if I could tell the Samson story in three minutes. Here we go. Ready? There's a guy named Samson. He's a barbarian. He's out of control. He's impulsive. He has no self-control. He's disrespectful. He's just really sort of a maniac, really. He falls in love with a Philistine woman, which was a no-no. He tells his parents, I love a Philistine woman. They're like, please don't love a Philistine woman. She worships other gods. He says, I don't care what you think. I'm going to love who I love. So he sneaks out of his parents' house in the middle of the night to go visit his girlfriend, because we would never do that. And on the way to visit his girlfriend, he evidently runs into a lion. Now, if you sneak out of your parents' in the middle of, uh, parents house in the middle the night to go see your girlfriend, one surefire way to get caught is to run into a lion. Evidently, he's armed enough and skilled enough to defeat the lion. He kills the lion, goes and sees his girlfriend, comes back, later sneaks out of his parents' house again to go do the same thing, and on the way to his girlfriend's house, the lion's carcass is there. And Samson does the most disgusting thing you can imagine. He reaches into the dead, rotting carcass and pulls food out of it and eats. This guy's disgusting. He's a barbarian. He's sort of half animal, really. Like, you would never act like this. He then shows up at his girlfriend's house, and it's at this point that he shows us he's also socially unaware. Here's the scenario. There are 30 Philistines and one Jew. And the one Jew in the room says, I know what I should do. I should prove to the whole room that Jews are smarter than Philistines, right? But there's 30 of them and one of him, right? He says, I tell you what, I'm going to tell you a riddle. And I bet all 30 of your pea brain Philistines all together. I bet all of you together for seven days. I bet you can't guess. And here's the thing. If you guess, I'll give you 30 pieces of clothes. If you can't guess, you owe me 30 pieces of clothes. So they make this bet. So he tells them a riddle. Out of the eaters, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. I bet you can't guess. I bet you can't guess. Of course they can't guess. He just made it up off the top of his head, and no one else saw what he was referring to. He, they're not going to be able to guess. So seven days go by. Here's what they do. They go to his fiance and they tell his fiance, hey, you need to do whatever it is women do to get men to talk when they don't want to talk. Details omitted. So she goes and does whatever it is women do to get men to talk when they don't feel like talking. And he says, look, I'll tell you, but you got to keep it between us. She said, of course. Of course, she doesn't do that. She tells her family. And at exactly the last minute, they guess the answer to the riddle. Now, if you're the type of person that needs a Bible verse for everything, like, where's that in the Bible? I need a verse. I want a verse. I need a verse for that. Here's a verse for you. This is a direct quote. It says, 
after they guessed the answer to the riddle, Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have never guessed the answer to the riddle. I love that. I love that. Because nothing like a good heifer plowing. Now, <clears throat> if you're paying attention to the story, Samson now owes them 30 pieces of clothes, right? Now, instead of just running to the store, admitting they got him, and just paying it off, no, no, no. Here's what he does. He goes and kills 30 of their family members, strips them naked, says, hey, I owe you 30 pieces of clothes. Here's 30 pieces of clothes from your family I just killed. And he throws them at their feet. This man loses a bet, and his reasonable response was to kill 30 people. That is a maniac. That is out of control. Listen, if you lose a bet tonight and you kill 30 people, you're going to go to prison forever, okay? Back then, they just wrote a book about you. The world's getting better. I don't know. Anyway, so, so he kills 30 people, hands them the clothes. They respond by giving his wife away to another man, right? He responds by burning their fields down with foxes, right? They then respond by burning that entire family at the stake, and then they send a thousand people to kill him. Massive overkill. To send a thousand dudes to kill one is amazingly overreactive. Samson then responds by picking up the jawbone of a donkey and killing all of them. They then respond by tricking him with another woman. They blind him, they put him on a donkey's millstone, and they make him do the work of a donkey. He then responds by tricking them into chaining him to the, to the pillars that hold the temple up, and at the exact right festival, he pulls the building down, and everybody dies. Now, if you're paying attention to the story, what started out as a joke no one understood escalated to everybody dying. Now, that's escalation, right? Right Now, if you're here tonight and you're married, you understand how this works, right? Here's what happens, right? Have you ever gotten an argument with your spouse about how to cut a tomato? And before you knew it, you were insulting each other's mothers, right? So, so it, it, goes, it goes something like this, right? It, it's like, that's not how you cut a tomato. That's how I cut a tomato. That's not how my mom cuts a tomato. Well, I ain't your mama. Well, I wish you cut a tomato like her. Well, I'm not as fat as her. And see, now it's on, right? That's how escalation, that's how escalation works. In this story, what starts as a joke that no one understood escalated into everybody dying. That's how hostility works. Now, hostility works on one belief. And Paul claimed that the cross was the end of this belief. It's all over this story. Let me show it to you a few different places. I was so sure that you thoroughly hated her, I, I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? You didn't want to be a woman back then, by the way. Take her instead. And Samson said to them, now here it is, here it is, ready? This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. Premeditated harm and believing that we're in the right to do so. That's how hostility works. It happens again in the next sentence. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. That's how hostility works. Hostility works when I believe that you deserve my retaliation and so much so that when I harm you, I'm going to premeditatedly harm you and I'll be innocent when I do so because you actually deserve it. Paul said the cross was the end of that. Why? Because here's the gospel in a nutshell. While we were acting with hostility to God, God responded with peace toward us. And if that's, if that's simply a belief, like, like a bullet point on a pamphlet, whatever, boring. But when it's beyond that, when we don't only just believe in the cross and resurrection, but allow it to fundamentally shift the way we see our whole world. If we were acting with hostility and God responded with peace, then we should do likewise with our brothers and sisters. And it should be the end of hostility. The way to show the world what God did was to show it with 
each other. Paul said that's the end of hostility. What's that mean? The end of hostility means it's the end of the thought that I'll ever be innocent if I harm somebody. That it's okay for me to premeditatedly harm you because I believe you deserve it. That the cross is the end of that. Could you imagine a world where we actually lived like that? How much better would that be? This happens again. Then the Philistines said, who's done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave him his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Massive overreaction. You're burning people alive in this thing, right? And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, watch what he says. I swear I'll be avenged on you. Then after that, I'll quit. In other words, I'm not going to stop till I'm one up. Here's the problem. If I don't stop till I'm one up, you don't stop till you're one up. Everybody dies. Paul is making the point that the cross is offering us a better way to live. A way that ends hostility. Now, if you're more of a linear learner than a narrative learner, I did this for you. So this is how hostility works. First, there's an offense. Somebody does something. We don't like it. So we think, oh, I'm going to get back at that. Then you dehumanize the adversary. This time I have a right to get even with you. Three, then there's an unwillingness to take responsibility for our part. You know what I find amazing about the Samson story? At no point in the Samson story does anybody own their stuff. At no point does Samson go, my bad. I disobeyed my parents. I shouldn't be here. My fault. You know what? You plowed with my heifer. I killed 30 of your family members. That was overkill. Seriously, that was mad. That, I was out of line. I shouldn't have killed 30 people. My fault. My fault. Hey, you know what? I burned your fields down and cost you a year's economy. My bad. You know, my, seriously, my bad. You know what? I killed 1,000 people with the jawbone of a donkey instead of just hiding. You know, I probably could have handled that a little differently. You know, at, at no point, at no point does Samson own his stuff. And at no point do the Philistines own their stuff. At no point do the Philistines go, you know what, seriously, honestly, burning people alive, our fault. You know what, taking your eyeballs out of your head, that was, man, we're actually embarrassed. That was such, a, seriously, seriously. Hey, killing a thousand, hey, sending a thousand people to kill one dude, our bad. Making you do the work of a donkey, seriously, repeatedly tricking you with women, honestly, that was, that's, that's our fault, our fault. Nobody in this story owns their stuff. Nobody. And then there's escalation because no one's willing to own their stuff. And then there's holding the other person responsible for the ex es it's, it's literally a four-year-old they started it, right? Which is cute at four, right? You walk into your four-year-old's room. And you're like, why are you choking your sister, you know? And he's like, she touched my toy. You're like, stop touching his toy. Stop touching, right? She started it. That's, that's cute at four. At 34, people actually get hurt, right? And then there's a failure to learn, which leads to repeating the pattern. Which leads me to a few observations. So the cross wasn't solely about forgiveness and freedom, but also the end of hostility. The cross was a physical manifestation of a new way to live. The most loving person acts first to end the hostility. And Jesus has called us to be that way in our world. Next slide. So peacemaking then is not passive. It's charging in with a different way. And changing lives. How many of you realize the guy in Israel... He decided beforehand how he would act in, in conflict. Nobody goes, peace between us is the most important thing. Nobody does that in the heat of the moment if they're not practicing that, if it's not a part of their heart. Now, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, verse 42. Don't, we already read it. Don't just love your friends. Love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. 
that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 5, verse 42. Now, all I did was go back three verses. That is the end of a three-pronged strategy Jesus was giving Galilean peasants about how to live at peace in a Roman occupation. The Galilean region was occupied by the Roman military, right? And Jesus is giving people life strategies about how to live at peace with persecutors, namely the Roman military. So if you thought that guy at work was a difficult person, it's not the Roman military, okay? These people were occupied and tormented by the Roman military. So Matthew 5.42 says, don't just love your friends, love your enemies, the Romans. Pray for those who persecute you, the Romans, that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. Now, all I did is go back three verses. And here's Jesus' three-pronged strategy on how to make peace. Here it goes. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil, the Romans. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. That's 539, three verses before 542, right? So he says, hey, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, how seriously do we take Jesus? How seriously have we taken that? How good are we at that? I would say we have a little bit of work to do on this. It also leads to the question like, does that actually work? I've heard well-meaning uh, I don't know. Well, I've heard well-meaning pastors use that verse to tell women they have to put up with somebody abusing them. Well, you know, turn the other cheek. No, what? There's an ancient, that's an ancient theology. It's based in Latin, bullimus crapimus, okay? Like that, that is, yeah, I can't think of the English translation of that. It's bullimus crapimus. Anyway, I, I don't know. Well, I have to think about the English. You can see Jamie Pine asking for this. But the, so, so, so the question is, is what's going on here? And does that actually work? Now, to understand this, we have to understand first century Roman class systems. So in the first century Roman Empire, you had a nine-layered class system, okay? I could give you the names of all nine, but that would be boring. So we'll call them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, okay? And the idea was is that if I'm a class two person and you're a class two person, then we're socially equal. So we would handle conflict a certain way by saying, you know what, we have a problem, but, but we're equal, right? And the way we would do that is if we had a problem, I would challenge you physically with my right hand because it's my clean hand. So I would just, I would hit you with my right hand. It's like saying, we have a problem, but we have a socially equal problem, right? But if I'm a class two person, and you're a class eight person, like a low class, not like a, like a low life, right? I would never hit you with my right hand because that would be declaring we're equal. What I would do is I would hit you with my left hand, quite literally, because it's the hand I wipe my butt with. It's like, it's like saying, you're not worth my clean hand. I'm going to hit you with my poo-poo hand. It's that. It would be like, it would be like using a racial slur. Like something no educated person would do, like the N-word or something. It, it would be like declaring someone socially less human than you, but doing so without words, you're doing it in a physical way, right? That would be the left-handed slap. Now think about what Jesus says here. He says, if someone slaps you on your cheek, no. He says, if someone slaps you on your right cheek. Well, think about it. If I'm going to hit someone on their right cheek, what hand would I use? My left hand. He says, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, Turn the other cheek. In other words, only present the side of you that makes someone address you as an equal and they won't 
do it. In other words, all peacemaking starts with an admission of conflict, but it also that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that we might have a problem, but you will address me as an equal. The only way to show peacemaking to our world is that when we have conflict, no one's powering up over the other, and we turn the other cheek. This is genius stuff from a first century rabbi. Now, Jesus says, first, turn the other cheek. This is the next sentence. This is just the very next sentence. Check this out. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. He says, if someone takes your outer garment, just give them your inner garment as well. Well, in first century culture, there was only two garments. Jesus is telling people to get naked, which, I, which even on the surface, that makes sense. Like, if someone demanded your outer garment and you just started stripping, they'd probably go, whoa, 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 that's enough, right? It's, it's, it's that kind of thing. Now, to understand the first one, we've got to understand Roman class systems. To understand the second one, we've got to understand Deuteronomy law. In Deuteronomy, if someone sues you and you can't pay, then you could give them your tunic as a promise. It was a way of doing away with debtor's prisons, right? So here's what would happen. In, in, in ancient Jewish culture, if I owed you money and you called me out in front of people, I could admit it in front of everybody by simply giving you my coat and saying, yes, I owe that person money. I can't pay, but I promise I will. That's part of the story. The other part of the story is Jesus is talking to Galileans. And in first century Galilee, historians estimate that they were living on 87% taxation, 50% of their grain, 30% of their fish, 12.5% to Caesar just for the divine privilege of having the son of God rule you, the Roman roads tax, the temple tax, and the dodginess of the tax collectors. These people were losing their family land that had been in their family since the book of Joshua. And the only people profiteering on this were, were 3% of Jews called the Roman sympathizers. And the Roman sympathizers were people profiteering on the Roman occupation. And then they were taking it a step further and they were suing their brothers and sisters in Galilee and literally taking the shirt off their back. Jesus said, if someone demands your outer cloak, just give them your inner cloak. In other words, get naked. Why would he say that? See, in Hebrew culture, being naked is not shameful. But seeing nakedness is. So the man being sued is putting all of his shame on the other while remaining peaceful. Because the idea is what kind of person would take both clothes? In other words, you confront conflict with setting boundaries in a peaceful way. And you confront oppression with uber generosity. It's sort of like this. If you're at dinner with a friend... And the waitress comes by and says, how are we doing the check? And one person says, split it up. And the other person says, I'll take the bill. And they do it at the same time. What's going to happen is, is both are going to argue about who takes the bill. But the greedy person's already played his cards face up. He's not wanting to take the bill. But the generosity of the generous man is exposing the greed in the heart of the greedy man. The way you expose greed is through uber generosity. And that makes peace. The very next sentence is this. And if someone forces you to go one mile, just go two. The very next sentence. So Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Give your tunic and your cloak. Go the extra mile. Don't just love your friends. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Now that's a weird sentence. To force someone to go a mile. That's weird. Was there like some sort of first century personal trainer? Come on, Willard, one more mile. Like what's going on here, right? Now, to understand the first one, we've got to understand Roman class systems. To understand the second one, we've got to understand Deuteronomy law. To understand the third one, we've got to understand Roman military law. So, 
The Galilean region was a military-occupied zone, and the Roman military had rules. Things they were allowed to do, things they weren't allowed to do, right? And some of the things they were allowed to do was atrocious, like rape your women, right? Terrible, right? It's just horrendous. Um, in certain places, they could crucify people for sport because they didn't want their, uh, their soldiers getting bored, right? So there were some horrendous things they were allowed to do. There was also some things they weren't allowed to do. And one of the things they were allowed to do is they always carried these 70-pound packs. And if they had to go on a walk, they're not carrying 70 pounds, not when they're surrounded by Class 8 lowlifes. So here's what Roman military law said, is that any Roman soldier could force, there's the word, force a Galilean peasant to carry their pack one mile. But they could never force them to go more than a mile or they would be court-martialed a day's wage because they wanted those people to be able to go back to work to pay more taxes. It would have been counterproductive. So Jesus says this, the next time a soldier forces you to go one mile at the one mile mark, just take off and go two. And you'll have a Roman soldier chasing you down, trying to get you to stop. Why? Because if you get a little bit of a reputation for being a little bit crazy, they'll leave you alone. You confront oppression with over-the-top generosity. So how does Jesus say make peace? He says, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Give your tunic and your cloak. Don't just love your friends. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. The cross was the end of hostility. I want to close tonight out with one more story from Jesus' life that's quite unique. It's quite weird, actually. We're very familiar with it. Here's, here's the basics of it. Um, everybody who could came from everywhere to Jerusalem and they ate the biggest meal of the year. It was called Passover. Passover included four glasses of wine. Um, it lasted from sundown, let's call that 6 p.m., and it lasted for four to four and a half hours, let's call that 10.30. So everybody had walked all day, they ate the biggest meal of the year, they drank four glasses of wine, and everybody's ready to go to bed. That's how it would work. Jesus, oddly, picks this time to have a prayer meeting, right? So... So there's a big meal, four glasses of wine. Jesus chooses to go pray in a garden, and his disciples are having a hard time staying awake. This irritates Jesus. He's like, come on, can you not stay awake for an hour and pray? I'm sweating blood here. They're like, come on, son of God, we just ate and drank four glasses of wine. There's this whole thing going on. In the middle of that, it says a high priest, a priest in training named Malchus. So the guy sort of, the, Caiaphas is sort of intern, right? Because Caiaphas, you can't go do the dirty work yourself. That's what you send interns to do. So Malchus shows up with a Roman platoon and with Judas. Judas kisses Jesus. There's this whole thing going on. And then it turns very weird very quickly. It says that one of Jesus' disciples took a knife and cut Malchus's ear off. Now, why is that weird? Have you, have, have you never looked at that and thought, why didn't they arrest that guy? Like, he just cut a man's ear off in front of the police, and their response is, oh, these crazy Jews, you know? There's all kinds of weird stuff going on. And I've preached this all over the world, and I've asked this all over the world. And anytime I ask, which disciple cut the man's ear off, everybody quickly says, Peter, right? How do we know that? Look, Matthew says a certain companion of Jesus. Mark says one of Jesus' friends. Luke says one of Jesus' disciples. I think, we just sort of, I think we just sort of blame Peter because he had a reputation for doing crazy stuff. Like he jumped out of a boat once. He fishes naked, you know. But look, 
Look, fishing is one of the things you should never do naked, right? It's up there with don't cook bacon, right? It's, it's, so he's sort of, uh, he's out there a bit, you know? And I, I think we, we do that because Matthew just simply says a certain companion of Jesus. Mark says of one of Jesus' friends. Luke says one of Jesus' disciples. Well, the way we know it's Peter is because John said Peter did it, right? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are like, let's keep this on the down low, shall we? John's like, nope, throw him under the bus. Peter did it, right? Now, here's the question. Is why was it legal to cut a man's ear off? I mean, that same guy is present at Jesus' trial 30 minutes later, and no one says anything. There's a poor guy with a healed ear. Like, it's just, it's just strange. And let, let, me, let me see if I can explain it in less than a minute, okay? There was tension in the first century between the Pharisees and the priests. Here it is. In order to be a Pharisee or a rabbi, you had to be trained for 30 years. In order to be a priest, you just had to be born. So there was tension between people who had to earn their way and people who were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Because we can sort of see that. And here's the problem. If all you had to do to be a priest was be born, how did you disqualify evil priests? Because if a righteous priest, is it possible for a righteous priest to give birth to a wicked son? Sure. And so you have a guy that doesn't care about God at all being your representative to God, and no one would want that. So you had to come up with a way to disqualify people, right? And so in the first century, here's what they did. They used an obscure law from Leviticus 21 to justify a certain action. I've copied and pasted this from the NIV. I did not change one word. This is straight Leviticus 21 in the NIV. Here it is. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man born blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face. I don't even know how you lived back then, right? Yes, sir, you are next in line to be the priest, but your face is just a bit mutilated for us. No, thank you, right? Or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf. Or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs. Or crushed testicles. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, was that actually a problem back then? Like, what kind of world were they living in? Hey, Bill, you look a little down. I am. What happened? Oh, these four guys, they got mad at me. They held me down, they took two bricks, and they crushed my testicles. You know what the worst part about that is? I can't be a priest anymore. Would you agree with me that if someone held you down and crushed your testicles, your last concern would be whether I could be a priest? Your only concern would be, where do I go to die, right? The other observation about this would be, would there be a more awkward job in the history of the world than the priestly inspector? You know, like face, not mutilated, check. You know, limbs about right, yeah, check. You got any scabs we don't know about? No, no. No itching disease? No, no, no. There's just this one more thing. It's going to be awkward for me and for you, but we got to check, you know. Right? Um, it's just weird. I, I, 
I have a good friend of mine that's in his fifth, he's, he's in his fifth year of PhD training to be a Catholic priest. And, and this year he had to be examined by a doctor um, uh, because of that verse. Anyway, interesting. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall draw near to offer the Lord's offering. Since he has a blemish, he can't come near. So here's the thing. So what they would do in the first century is if they deemed a priest unfit for service, they would give them a blemish. And now, thankfully, they didn't choose the crushed testicle option. What they did is they would mangle their ear. Uh, let me define that. They would hold them down. They would pierce their ear and pull. Now, that would hurt real bad. You would get over it, but it would leave you with a public, um, obvious, forked earlobe, right? And what that would do is that would disqualify you. Uh, essentially, Peter was saying, you are fixing to kill the real temple. Therefore, you have no right to serve in the temple made with the hands of men. I'm going to make sure you never do, right? And he, and he flicks his ear. Now, my Sunday school teacher told me that Peter was trying to cut his head off and missed. Now, with all respect, that makes no sense. Like, if you, if you're, think about it. If you're trying to cut a man's head off and you hit them in the ear hole, that's called a direct hit. The head's on the other side of that. What, what more than likely happened is that Peter came up behind him and just, just flicked it off. Now, none of that's important. Most of that was for comedy. But the, what's more important is Jesus' response. Now, think about this. Jesus is fixing to be tortured and crucified. And on his way to being tortured and crucified, he takes a second and he heals the man who's leading the charge to kill him. That is the physical embodiment of the end of hostility. That you're acting with hostility towards me and I'm still gonna show the world what it looks like for me to act with peace towards you. That is how Jesus called us to live. Which is why any message of Jesus that says, if you don't do something, Jesus is gonna be like, no, no, that is not the message of Jesus. I don't care if there's a 25 foot cross over the top of the building. That is not the message. Jesus took time to love heal and restore the man who was leading the charge to kill him. Now that is the end of hostility. Which leads me to this. As a church of Jesus Christ, have we become ear cutters or ear repairers? Are we always looking for ways to take people's ears off? Do we put things on the internet as to why people shouldn't be in ministry? Cut, 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 cut. Cut, always looking for a way to cut people's ears when actually the church of Jesus Christ should be ear repairers and never ear cutters. And here's why that's important. Because on Sunday, there'll be 20 people, 30 people who visit here with their metaphorical ear in their hand. And here's what they're saying. They don't have the words for this, but they're saying, inside, I feel like I can't. Inside, I feel like I'm disqualified. I feel like I've been, I feel like I've done things that are too far gone. And the church of Jesus Christ, if any place, should be the place of clean slates, fresh starts, second chances, mulligans, and the opportunity to write a better story. That this should be the place where we put people's ears back on their head and never take them off. Now, the truth of it is, is sometimes you'll do everything you could do to put someone's ear back on and they're not going to have it. But that's on them. But our heart should be always to be ear repairers and never ear cutters. Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. It's meant to be wrestled with. So let's wrestle. Have we received the cross that forgives us while rejecting the cross that ends hostility? So where have we said yes to salvation, like get me to heaven, 
But we've rejected the side of the cross that says we should act with peace in hostility. Like, let me say it another way. Where have we wanted mercy for ourselves, but justice for everybody else? God, forgive me. God, forgive me. God, for God, get them. God, get, no, what? No. Is there any place we're escalating violence right now? Is there any place that we're plotting in our mind how to get even with somebody? I, I will get even with you. And then after that, I'll quit. Where, where do we need to act first to be a peacemaker? In a room this size, it is statistically improbable that there's not at least one married couple who's given each other the silent treatment right now. Right? It's just statistically impro improbable. So, so, so one's not talking, and the other's doing this. And it all, if you really think about it, it probably started over how to cut a tomato. Right? It's probably, in other words, where it's escalated to is less of a big deal than where it started. Right? And somebody's got to act first to end it. Right? And who's going to act first? Whose responsibility is it? The man or the woman? Actually, it's whoever's most mature. Whoever's most mature is going to act first to end the hostility. And I realized I just created another competition. No, I'm more mature. No, but, but, but at some point, we've got to show the world what it looks like to handle conflict well. Let, let's say this way. Whose ear do we need to repair? Is there anyone that we've cut their ear off or we've participated in some sort of horrendous gossip? Or worse, we've put it on the internet. Hey, so Jesus has given his life for us. What's our offering going to be back to him? Now, if you're the type of person that can only remember one line from a sermon, I don't want it to be crushed testicles. So let's, let's, let's frame this one last way. What if the cross was God saying, how far do I have to go for you all to get along? What if the cross was, what if God's going, okay. What if, just humor me for a second. What if God was in heaven going, I need to do something to demonstrate how to end hostility and live at peace. What, what can I do? Okay, so they're acting with hostility to me. I'll die for them. I won't even bring it up. And this will demonstrate how we should live in our world. What if the cross was God going, is this far enough for you to be inspired to treat others with peace, even if they deserve it? Even if they deserve retaliation, what if the world saw the Christians being the people at peace. What if we did it that way? Thank you so much for letting me be your guest tonight. I hope Jesus got bigger. I hope the cross worked better. I hope the resurrection central. I hope scriptures got bigger, not smaller. So may you, my brothers and sisters, not just be on your way to heaven when you die. May we bring heaven to every place we see hell here by living at peace. Now, I was supposed to be done by eight. It is 8.03. I went three minutes over. I apologize. I hope that doesn't bother you. But if it does, peace between us is the most important thing. Grace and peace, everybody. See you next time. That's good. That was good, wasn't it? I said that was good, wasn't it? Yeah, that was good. We always enjoy it when Shane comes and gives us these little nuggets all through the word and shows us a little bit of uh, history and um, just brings the scriptures alive and brings things together. So thank you, for my friend, for coming again tonight, being with us. And uh, thanks, Pastor Jamie and Penny, for being here tonight, and Pastor Randy for being here tonight all the way from uh, up north, and um, just glad he's here. And matter of fact, uh, we're just believing that Pastor Randy's going to be moving back here shortly. Yeah. And um, yeah, open doors, and uh, believing that for him. It's good to see so many familiar faces here as well tonight. 
And um, let's, let's do something. Let's sow a, a sizable seed. Let's give a, a good seed into the ministry of Shane Willard. Um, as you know, we, we try to sow a monthly seed into his ministry. His ministry is doing great works all around the world, uh, rescue, rescuing women from sex trafficking and just other things that are happening and giving homes for these women. And it's, it's fantastic, great ministry, and we appreciate that. And we, we sow seed to that every month. We, we, give, we give a small seed to that. But tonight we want to just give a, we want to bless him. If you're making a check, you can make it payable to RLCE, um, or otherwise you can fill out your envelope. There's, there's also a place on there if you left your checkbook at home. You can uh, write $1,000 on the, on the part where it says visa. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, be responsible. If you're going to use your visa, be responsible. Make sure it's something that you can afford to give. Isn't that right? We don't give to get into debt. Amen? So l- let's do that. Let, let's be a blessing to him tonight. So these are coming forward to, to take that offering up right now. And let's pray and then we'll dismiss all at the same time. Amen? Father, thank you for this evening tonight. Thank you that we have the ability to be peacemakers, that we can not cut off ears but restore ears. Love it. Thank you tonight, Father, for your grace on our lives. May we be those that are going out from this place to this great region that we live in to make a difference, to be the light of the world. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.